Thank you for worshiping with us here at Mission Church of the Nazarene. If you have God's word, I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to just get right to it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to pick up at verse 23 down through verse 32, I believe. And so let's just kind of begin to read there. So if you have God's word, let's look at Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to begin at verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for the word today. I thank you, Lord, how you have that ability. Your spirit comes in and divides the faults from the truth. And I pray, Lord, that that even as we are listening today, as we are listening this, this moment and this day of worship, that, Father, that you would do that, that your spirit would take charge of our heart and take charge of our lives and, yes, even take charge of our listening as we hear your word tonight. So, Father, we pray your anointing upon this reading. Be with those today that have special needs. Lift them up. Be with our families that maybe are going through difficult times. Again, Lord, just meet these needs. We thank you for that. Thank you for this word. I pray for your blessing upon it. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's glorious name. Amen and amen. I want to say right out of the starting gate here that my focus today is going to be more on probably the last part of the text uh, than the first part. And so I just kind of wanted to get that out of the way. So we'll be thinking about that. Now, obviously, the powers that be here, which were the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were in the middle of laying out a trap for Jesus. In fact, we go back to verse 15, go back before this passage just a little bit, and you can see there that that was their intention. In fact, I I think it's important that we recognize that because that is really their M.O. all along the way as we read about the leaders and the Pharisees and and the teachers of that day. And, And, of course, more than anything, they wanted to make him look bad. I mean, that's kind of you know, was the objective. They really wanted to make him look bad, and that's why the question about whose wife would she be. And, of course, their hope was to make Jesus have to do these intellectual backflips, but Jesus slips through their insidious fingers like a watermelon at summertime, and I love that because Jesus is no stranger to difficult questions. I mean, he, he, he can handle it. He can deal with issues that are thrown at him, and he knows how to unravel those things, but he does what he is best at doing, When they come at him with a challenge or a question, I mean, that happens reoccurringly again and again in Scripture. But he does what he does best. And what he does is he he begins to refer or paint the bigger picture, meaning that just who is God? 
In fact, there's no mystery that God knew that we would be reading about this conversation that Jesus was having with these Pharisees this day and in this time and in this decade, these many centuries later. And that in this hour, as as we're worshiping and sitting right here, that God knew that we were going to listen to this and that there would just be this 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 clear understanding or description that Jesus gives us of just who God really is. And who we are in his sight. And the fact is Jesus addresses this confrontation as easy as tying, you know, a bow on your tennis shoe. Because it was really a revelation of who God is. In fact, it hits, again, the bigger thing. That's the kingdom of God. And in this moment, we learn some kingdom truths. And I I want us to look at them. The first one, notice, he reminds them that God says, listen to this, look at the passage for a moment. God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And I highlight that because notice he does not say that I was the God of Abraham or I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But he, he says, I am which is a really a, a significant thing, giving us a permanent reality of a created person and their soul. I mean, that this earthly birth gives us a heaven identity in all of eternity, especially when one is in Christ. So we recognize that, that the continuing personality of the individual that God brings to life on this earth is then identified in all eternity in heaven to come. The second thing, notice this, that Jesus' words at the end of verse 32 set this little scenario on fire. I mean, it's, it's a spiritual fire because what we read in verse 34, which is beyond our text this, this morning is, is that we read this hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So we're talking about the Sadducees in hearing what Jesus had to say. And as he held them accountable, we read here that, that they were silenced, (laughs) you know, in contemporary terms in modern terms, you know what that means? That means they were caught flat footed, right? It means they, they, they had nothing to say. They couldn't say anything because Jesus had really held them accountable. Now, look what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, the text is, is not about the question. See, they thought it was about the question. They thought that, that, that the challenge was they're going to trap Jesus. But you see, the topical sentence here is really about the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what do we know? Let's look at history for just a little bit. What do we know? Well, we know that Sadducees were not fans of the resurrections. And the basis for Jesus' claim that the religious powers at the time made big mistakes and denying the power of God becomes evident, especially when we recognize that the, the most excellent and visible way that we, we know and see the power of God is in the resurrection. Hence, we have Jesus Christ, his birth, his death and resurrection. So we see, again, visibly the most simple expression of that power that we're talking about or that Jesus is talking about in this text, which is the power of God. Recognize that. Then Jesus mentions not only resurrection, but also the angels. I mean, there's a lot in this text that he throws at them. And so it's interesting that Jewish thoughts on angels further, you know, support the idea that angels, you know, they don't eat or they don't drink. They don't propagate. Why? Because they they live, you know, they just don't die. They live forever, of course, unless God destroys them. So Christ's ingenuity here is astounding. I mean, in regards to scripture, because he points out. The lack of scriptural knowledge of those that are questioning him by saying, have you not read (laughs) almost, you know, a little bit of, you know, fun here with them, Uh, maybe a little attitude even. He said, have you not read? 
As if, have you not, do you not know what the scripture says here? Because, I mean, these guys that he's communicating with, that he's talking to, they were the experts. I mean, they were the teachers of the law. And he says, have you not read? And, of course, all of this brings us back to the fact that he is not the God of the dead. Listen to that. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Amen. So what we see in Jesus in his his ministry here and as he's dealing with this challenge, it's pointing us to the power of God. I mean, that's a double point. I mean, it's a double point. It's the power of God. That he wants us to recognize. So what do we have here? And I want to kind of uh, mention a few different things here. I want to talk about God's power that gives life for eternity, gives life for salvation, gives life for your future. So let's begin with the first one. God's power gives life for eternity. Think about that for just a moment. I mean, just process this idea that God's power gives life for eternity. We see that. I mean, that's part of the reference here in this text. I mean, it is as if Jesus is arguing for God's continuing purposes for an individual after death when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is really this, the ultimate resurrection is the continuation of individuality as we move into everlasting life in relationship with Jesus Christ and, of course, eternity. So the premise is that God would not claim to be the God of someone who no longer existed. I mean, that's the premise of what Jesus is, is saying in refuting the challenge that was given to him by, of course, the Pharisees here. So one source invokes really God's covenant faithfulness with his ongoing fulfilling promises, that he's going to continue to fulfill the promises, fulfill the promises of those that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's the key. If God was still God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, if God's power is unlimited, think about that. If God's power is unlimited, then he would ultimately fulfill his promise to them. This is not just about their descendants, just as God stood with Abraham and said, your descendants will be numbered like the sand of the ocean. It's not this this descendant thing, but he's saying it's beyond that. This is the continuing fulfillment of the promises of God in them as individuals in eternity. Amen. So what do we have here? We see God's power that gives life for eternity. Man, the crowds were astounded by this head stuff that Jesus was was giving them. And then the second one here, or the second idea, is God's power gives life for salvation. Now, remember, Jesus, his very presence was for the life and the salvation of individuals. And it was by the power of God. I mean, that's the point that he's trying to make. It's by the power of God. In fact, we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, and we read... And his incomparably great power for us who believe. So there's this incomparable power, this unimaginable power, this ability that God has. And it's that ability and that power that is for those who believe. That's that's the premise here. And then Ephesians chapter one uh, or excuse me, first Corinthians chapter two, verse five. Paul writes so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, remember, this is a faith that's resting in, in God's power. I mean, that's just another way to say what Paul said, that our faith or this faith that he gives us is resting in God's power. And is a faith that's not of ourselves, but it's what it is a gift of God. So even the very faculty or the ability to have faith, which is something he gives to his creation, us human beings that are creating his image. He doesn't give this ability to animals. Think about it. But he gives us this ability to have faith to us, 
you know, his creation and, and it's by the power of God, then that faith is resource that we might have the faith for salvation and for everlasting life. It's interesting, the thread that we see that Paul just keeps circling back to in regards to the power of God. Because we're talking about power for life, but really power for everlasting life that is ours in, in, in Christ Jesus. So what am I saying? I'm saying Paul now has established that power is what resources the faith that God enables us with or gives us, you know, for his glory. It's, a, it's, it's power that, that resources that faith. It's the power that, that enables that faith. But also it is power that protects our faith. In fact, we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and we read, we are protected by the power. We're protected by the power. So the power is resourcing our faith. The power is enabling the faith. And the power is protecting our faith. Then Paul reminds us in Colossians, that it is by the power of God that we are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. Now, I, I'm, this is pretty simple, but... I think it's good to be reminded that there is something that happens by the power of God when Jesus Christ becomes our Savior. When Jesus Christ becomes the one that we are looking at. When Jesus Christ becomes the one that we are following and we say, okay, Jesus, I identify with you and I want to learn how to to honor you and to worship you and to live like you. There is something that happens and you see what Paul is referring to is this. This transference from from one place, which is the domain of darkness. And remember, darkness usually represents evil or or death into uh, the kingdom of light. And light, of course, represents life. So we're being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's everlasting life by the power of God. I mean, that's the key by the power of God. So it's by God's power that we have life for salvation. For it is by grace, again, for it is by grace that we're saved by faith. This is not of ourselves, but a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So how, how do we, you know, build on this faith idea? I mean, what part does faith play? Or, or how do we understand our part, our role in faith? Well, it's kind of like this. I've heard it explain it in a simple way. It's kind of like, um, you know, putting faith, say, in a physician, a, a, a doctor. Let's say I find out there's something wrong, something terribly wrong, and maybe it might be cancer. And so my family's concerned. We gather. We decide to do some research. We do our research, right? Uh, we do our research, and we find the very best doctor, number, you know, one of the top ten in the nation. And say we identify her, and I go to her, and I say, okay, you're going to be my doctor because something's terribly wrong. And I give her all my files, and I give her all my information. I'm completely transparent, and I give her all my trust. And I put my faith in that physician, in that doctor, and I say to her that, man, the end result of this is going to be up to you because I trust you. I have faith in you. Just like I identify a lawyer or an attorney and I bring them my case. And I, I, I'm transparent because, you know, attorney client privilege. And I tell, you know, that attorney everything. I don't hold anything back. I, I, I trust that attorney 100%. And I realize that in my difficult case, that if I make it through, it's because of the faith and the trust I have in that attorney. Or like the banker. When I go to the banker, follow me. I go to the banker and I, boom, sit on his desk. And this is all my treasure. And this is all my gold. And this is all that, that I value. These are my values. And I'm trusting you to invest it and to keep it safe. 
You see, faith is like that. We are leaning into the one that we trust. We are leaning into the power. We are leaning into the protection of the one who is our Savior. And when I believe in the Savior and I take Jesus as my Savior, I take my helpless case. I take my broken life and I put it in the hands of the Savior. And then all of a sudden the Savior does for me what I cannot do for myself. And what the Savior does for me is the Savior forgives me of my sin. The Savior washes me clean and the Savior makes me whole. And all of a sudden I have this life with purpose and fulfillment because of the Savior, because of Jesus Christ. And all of that is because of the power of God. Because of the power of God. And I spent a great amount of time understanding, really kind of cultivating this idea and, and this concept of the power of God as we began looking at Scripture. But man, Jesus is kind of pointing us again. It's like a double point. It's like a double point. It is about the power of God. And so we have God's power, of course, for eternity. We have God's power and God's power gives life for salvation. But then we have God's power that gives life for the future. (laughs) No question. God's power gives life for the future. I was in an elementary school, probably maybe second or third grade. And uh, I, I was a star of the school play. That's right. Third grade. Right. Second grade. Start the school play, and we were doing a Charlie Brown play, and guess what? I was Charlie Brown. <laughs> and I was a little bitty guy, a little hyperactive probably, and I probably was falling down all the time. And I think because I could just fall down on cue, and I wasn't afraid to embarrass myself, you know, boom, uh, they chose me to be the star of the play, to be Charlie Brown. And so I connect with Charlie Brown, especially when I read some of, you know, the comic strips and watch some of the cartoons, but I just want to share one little strip with you about Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is seen at bat. This is the beginning of the strip. Charlie Brown is seen at bat. Strike three. He is struck out again. He slumps down on the player's bench. He says, rats, I'll never be a big league player. I just don't have it. All my life, I've dreamed of playing in the big leagues, but I know I'll never make it. Lucy turns to console him. Charlie Brown, you're thinking too far ahead. What you need to do is set yourself more immediate goals. Charlie Brown looks up and asks, immediate goals? Lucy responds, yes. Start with this next inning. When you go out to pitch, see if you can walk out to the mound without falling down. (laughs) Uh, You you see, I, I think the moral of the story, you know, and I love Lucy. She always has some witty thing, some wise response, but you have to think about it sometimes. But I think the, the moral of the story is you don't have to solve life's problems today. You don't have to answer tomorrow's questions, you know, right now. You see, we, we come to this place where the scripture is talking about the power of God and the peace that passes human understanding that we experience in Christ. And we realize that this is a savior that wants to bring peace to our heart and peace to our life and everlasting life right now. I mean, that's the promise that Jesus gives his disciples when he says, peace, peace, I I, I leave unto you. You see, the power of God for the future is that we might experience peace today in our heart. And I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what your fears are. I don't know what your tribulation might be or, or how rough the water is. But I know that in the midst of the darkness and and no matter how deep the valley is, that there is a peace 
Like a river, there's a peace that passes human understanding. There's a peace that is overwhelming that God wants to wash over you. I love what this one author, J.K. Dotson, writes about in a book called Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. And here's what he writes in his understanding of the Beatitudes. He says, live faithfully now, experience God's blessing in the future. So that's kind of the concept, you know, the baseline there. Live faithfully now, experience God's blessing in the future. He says, he writes, live poor in spirit now and you'll benefit immediately. Hunger and thirst for righteousness now and you'll get a taste Excuse me. You get a taste of eternal satisfaction. So we see that the power of God for the future is realizing the peace of God for today. Did you catch what I just said? (laughs) That the power of God that he gives us for the future in part is to realize the peace of God that he gives us today. The peace in the midst of our obedience and our faithfulness to him. And again, he gives us the power to have that faith and experience the peace that he desires for us. Because he has our very best future in mind. And I, I say that from my heart to Mission Church of the Nazarene. Listen to this. That God has your very best future in mind. I mean, who else can we trust? I mean, who else knows the future better than God? Because God, listen to me, God really knows the future. I mean, he knows your future. And I'm saying to Mission Church today that, that it is God that has our future in our hands. He has the church in his hands. He has the ministry in his hands. And we find that we are leaning into this God that is provider, this God that is protector. And as we are leaning into him, it is this power that is poured out upon us. And it is God that knows what our best future is. And I find myself confident and not myself at all ever. But I find myself confident in this God that knows our best future. This God that wants to pour his power into our life that we might have everlasting life and experience the peace that is ours when we walk with Christ. But he's a God that wants us to have peace for today. He wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He he wants us to, to hear his voice as we are walking maybe in new territory or different land that we've ever walked in. And man, these are different times for the whole church globally. Different times for each of our families, for individuals. These are different times. But God wants to pour his peace out upon us. And he wants to bless us. And I believe that he has our best future in mind when we lean into him and we trust him. I'm going to invite you to do that today. Would you follow me? Would you pray with me uh, this day, this worship day, as we worship God and as we lean into him and we trust him with our future. Let's do that. Let's all pray together, whether we're here on campus, at home. Let's pray. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness. And Lord, just really answer our prayers. I know some came in here this morning. They, they, they probably had just some, some heavy, heavy things on their heart. Or maybe there were some you know, pressing issues that they had real need for. And, Lord, I believe that you've heard their prayer. I believe that, Lord, that you've given them rest, peace, as they've just learned to lean into you as they're listening about your power to protect, your power to care for them. And, Lord, your power to know what that future, that best future is. And so, Father in heaven, I pray for this congregation. I pray for this people. And, and Lord, whether we're listening here on campus or whether we're at home or wherever we might be, I pray that, Lord, that your peace will just pour over your people, your church, to realize that, God, that you are in control.
you have our best future in mind. And so, Father, we thank you for the chance that we have to love you, the chance we have to serve you, to honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's wonderful name. Amen and amen. God bless you. So great to have you worshiping with us today on this worship day. And I want to encourage people to remember that we are launching our small group or mission communities. Get it plugged into one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Visit our website, missionas.org, and see which small groups that are available. Get plugged into one or volunteer to lead one. But, man, it's important that we keep networking and we keep connected together. And so I just want to invite you to get connected with one of our small groups. God bless you. Uh, have a good Sabbath, and, and thank you for worshiping with us. Mm-hmm.